pray together. Oh, our mighty and glorious and holy God, our living God, what a great joy it is to gather together at the feet of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Lord Jesus, we are here to learn of you. Oh God, by your Spirit, give light to our minds and life to our hearts. Your Son's words are words of life, and like a two-edged sword at the same time, pierce us to our very hearts, and in piercing us, give us your life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in Matthew 13, seven parables Jesus has taught, and today we come to the eighth. He calls these parables of the mysteries of the kingdom in verse 11. And what he means by that, we've learned, is that the kingdom of God revealed throughout the Old Testament from the very first chapters of God's Word and expected and longed for and long prophesied had come close in his person, but Israel had not repented at his preaching. And the leaders had looked at the works of God in the ministry of Jesus and said they were actually done by Satan. And so in the face of that, the kingdom would not come immediately. All of the prophecies would not be immediately fulfilled as expected by the people, but as planned by God, there would be a new phase in God's kingdom program, what Jesus calls the mysteries of the kingdom. You can't learn about these from the Old Testament. Jesus teaches these in these parables, which he speaks only to, well, he speaks to the crowds, but explains only to the disciples in this uh, chapter. The first parable frames all of them. It's the parable of the sower and the soils, and it sets the stage for understanding what this age will be. In this parable, the sower throws good seed on four different kinds of soil, and of the four, only one responds with comprehension. That's an important word, as we'll see and bears fruit. The other three, one way or another, reject the word and do not bear fruit. And so after that framing opening parable, he has six parables, two sets of three. The first three about growth, the second three about worth. The first three show that this will be an age where the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the wicked one grow together until the time of harvest. And it's not ours to try to uproot the sons of the wicked one. Uh, But God will do that at the end of this age, the consummation of this age. Then the next two, the parables of the leaven and of the mustard seed, show that though uh, it has a very small beginning, uh, the gospel of the kingdom will spread broad and wide and will grow to a surprising degree. Then the next three parables are parables of worth. The first two show the great treasure, the treasure hidden in the field or the pearl above uh, above all price. And those speak of Jesus, the king of the kingdom, in whom all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And the person who finds him for joy of that discovery gladly parts with everything else so that he might have that treasure. And those who see the treasure but pass it by, the the last of those three parables shows, are like fish caught up in a net, good fish and worthless fish. The good fish taken aside, but the worthless fish, the ones who saw no worth in Jesus is the meaning, and are themselves worthless. They're cast 
aside. They're burned. And Jesus says that's like the end of the age where the angels again will come and harvest and set the good apart from the wicked and the wicked will suffer uh, the pains of hell forever. Having told all those parables, now he closes uh, with asking a question, as we'll see, and telling an eighth and final parable. In fact, what we see in, in today's two verses, just two verses, he just abruptly, without any announcement, out of nowhere, asks them a question. Now, if you've ever been in a setting, I've been on the other side of this, when you're, you're in listening mode and suddenly a question is asked you. It's like shifting from drive to reverse. It's a whole different mindset. And so out of the blue, Jesus asks them this question. Was it startling to them? Oh, almost surely. Did it force them to think? Yes, I think likely so. That was the purpose of it. But this was part of how Jesus taught them and took them forward as disciples. And in seeing what he did with them, we will see what he's doing with us and understand it a whole lot better. And we will find ourselves as confronted as they were. So let's stand by them and let's take this question from Jesus and let's go where Jesus takes us. Roman numeral one, abruptly with no transition, Jesus probes. Jesus probes, P-R-O-B-E-S, verse 51. And... The translation is just that abrupt. Did you comprehend all these things? They say to him, yes. Now these are just six words in Greek. Just six words. Three words devoted to the question. Three words devoted to telling the answer. Isn't that interesting? Jesus uh, says, Sunekate tauta panta. Did you understand these things? All of them. Three words. And then the response is told, Legusinato nai. They say to him, yes. So there it is. Let's look at this closely. As Jesus first, letter A, he probes them. We see Jesus probes them. Now, I have to confess to you, uh, which I do without shame, that I just about always read this wrong. I didn't completely understand this. Uh, Because there was a meaning to it that struck me so hard and so obviously that I just didn't see past it until just recently. And that is just that I've always seen this as a very funny verse. I just think it's very, very funny. If you know about the disciples and you know what bumbling knotheads they are and you see all the mistakes they make and all their misunderstandings and the times Jesus calls them you of little faith and so forth, for Jesus to say, did you understand all these things? And for them to say, yep, that just always cracked me up. It just always seems funny. And that he wouldn't then himself burst into laughter when they said that has always kind of seemed strange to me. I'm not the only one. I saw teaching on this by uh, famed Bible teacher Warren Wearsby. And, and he sees it kind of the same way. He says, Jesus says, do you understand all these things? And they're like, sure, what do you want to know? It's like they'd gone out and they'd bought study Bibles, you know, and they had all the answers right there. Just, just what do you need to know? I'll help you out. But I come to see that I, I'm not getting, I wasn't getting this right. And with the help of uh, some of my older, better brothers from the 1800s and on, I see a lot more going on in here than I had seen. Let me try to open that up to you. Because it's actually an interchange of great importance and of great significance to us. So let's look at Jesus' question And look at the verb. He says, comprehend. He says, did you comprehend all these things? Now, that word comprehend is actually a big word. The the verb translated comprehend occurs nine times in Matthew's gospel. And of those nine times, six of them are in this chapter. 
So it's a big word for this chapter, the word comprehend, to be able to put things together uh, in a logical way. Because comprehend, Jesus shows us, is exactly what the reprobate don't do. Comprehend is exactly what the reprobate don't do. It's exactly what those outside don't do. Those who are not his disciples do not comprehend. That's your first point to note. Let me give you some background on this without using the word. Turn to Matthew chapter 11, and we'll see how Jesus sees this. We want to see it how Jesus sees it. Amen? So Matthew chapter 11 He's had this, he sent his apostles out and joined them on a ministry to many cities, doing mighty works, preaching the kingdom. And we see in verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Because they did not repent. They'd had exposure to his word and his works, but they did not repent. And how does Jesus take that? He denounces them. And then in verse 25, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Behind their unbelief, he sees the sovereign will and decree of God standing behind that. And he praises God for it. He thanks God for it. And then he goes on to say in verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So this is behind this lack of comprehension. And it comes to the fore now in chapter 13, which see, turn over to chapter 13, and look at verses 13 to 15, which I believe we just read, Matthew 13. Verses 13 through 15. Therefore I speak to them in parables. The disciples ask, why are you speaking to them in parables? Because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand or comprehend. That's the same word, same verb. They don't comprehend. That's why I'm speaking to them in parables, because they don't comprehend. And then in them the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing but will not comprehend. There it is a second time. And then if you just run your eyes down to the uh, verse 15 at the end, they've closed their eyes lest they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand, or again, same word, comprehend with their hearts and return, and I would heal them. So I say it's important for us to understand that when he asks them if they comprehend all these things, That's exactly what reprobate don't do. That's exactly what those outside don't do. What those left to themselves uh, don't do. They don't comprehend the teaching of Jesus. So it's very important that he asks them whether they do. Because comprehend is exactly what the elect do do. It's exactly what disciples and believers do do. Same background in, in chapter 11, verse 20, just to highlight again. Jesus says that uh, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So just as behind the unbelief is the decree of the Father, so behind the belief 
of the saved, of the disciples, is the decree of the Father and the action of the Son and the will of the Son, the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It's very important. We spent a good deal of time on that when we were there. He doesn't say people who are smarter or better or more sincere or have a better disposition towards God, which Scripture clearly says none do. None does, strictly, grammar-wise. None does. None seeks after God, Scripture says, unless given to whom the Son wills to give, he says. And in verse, uh, uh, verse 25, he had said, you've revealed them to infants. Again, they weren't smart enough to figure it out. God revealed it to them. Why do they see them? Why do they know them? Why do they comprehend? Because of the sovereign grace of God opening their eyes, opening their hearts, changing their natures. So that's the background. Now for the foreground, look back at chapter 13. And you'll recognize that we actually just read this. 13 verse 11. They ask, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus says to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. It has been given you. He does not say you're bright enough to figure it out. You're good enough to accept it. You're sincere enough. You're humble enough. None of those things. He says it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the heaven. This is a sovereign work of the grace of God. And to them it's not been given. And then look at verse 23. Where he says, describing the good soil where the seed bears fruit. What is that soil? What does it represent? Jesus says, this is the man who hears the word and what? understands it, comprehends it, same word, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So yeah, you see, comprehension is a big, big deal in this chapter. And it's not a small thing, and it's not a funny thing, as I'd misread it, that Jesus asks them if they've comprehended. Because comprehension is what sets the elect apart from the reprobate. His disciples apart from those outside, the the unbelievers. Disciples are given by the sovereign grace of God the ability to know. But it's not magical. And so he probes them. And he says to them, do you comprehend these things? He wants to make them think and reflect over them. He wants them to engage. It's very important to him to make sure that in fact they do comprehend these things. Now let's consider together the context. Letter B. He says all these things. Did you comprehend all these things? All what things? Well, I think most obviously all the teaching of the parables he just told. The seven parables. Did you comprehend what was taught by these parables? You see, the teaching of these parables is crucial You've got to get that if you're going to go on with Jesus, if you're going to continue to walk with Jesus, much less if you're going to be a leader for Jesus, as these men are going to be. See, the nation has just been written off as being under God's judgment and blinded and deafened. They've been written off, so Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's next. We've been going out saying the kingdom of the heavens is at hand, but that's not going to be preached any longer. So what do we do now? What is this age? That's what these parables have explained. And in explaining that, though the parables aren't about the church age per se, 
We're in that mystery phase of God's kingdom. So they do explain what's going on in our age, that this is an age such as Jesus describes, where what God is doing is he's sowing the seed of his word. And men are all responding, some by letting it go and some by taking it in. And some are seed of the wicked one and some are seed of of God. The leaven reaches some, some nest under the branches of the kingdom, some discover the treasure and sell all for it, but others show their worthlessness by seeing no treasure and no great value in Jesus. That's this age. That's what Jesus is, is describing. And so, obviously, if they're going to navigate this age, just as believers let alone be leaders in Jesus' cause, leaders in Jesus' future church. They've got to understand what's going on and not not confuse this age, as we've seen people do in church history. Confuse this age with the conquest of Canaan or with the kingdom of God or something else, but understand what this age is about. And so Jesus explains that to them and he asks them, did you comprehend all these things? Now, what I think this reveals to us, number two, is fundamentally Jesus' concern as a preacher. And I don't know if it jars you for me to call Jesus a preacher, but Jesus certainly is a preacher. It's the first thing we see him him do. He goes out and he preaches. The kingdom of the heavens is drawn near. Jesus is a preacher. And so perhaps you don't think very often about what motivates a preacher, how a preacher thinks. I wouldn't blame you if you didn't. But... A preacher is, has a particular concern. He doesn't just get up because the list of things to do says, okay, at this point I get up and teach, and then at this point I sit down, and then I go home. It's, it's more complicated than that. There's, there's more to it than that. And we see into Jesus' heart by the question he asks, what is it that Jesus wants to know? He, he has, he's going to ask them a question. What question is he going to ask him? Because in the question he asks them, he reveals his concern. He reveals what he wants to achieve. He reveals how he sees them and we'll see how he sees us and what he wants for us, his aim, his focus, what matters to him. So first we might ask ourselves, well, what doesn't he ask them? Well, you notice he doesn't ask them, so how do you feel about that? How do those parables make you feel? Do those parables make you happy? Do they uplift you? Do they make you feel like conquering the world? Do they depress you? Do they make you sad? Do they make you feel like a winner? Do they make you feel like... He doesn't ask them anything about how the parables make them feel. He doesn't ask them, did these parables give you an experience? Now that I've told you these parables, do you feel closer to God? Do you feel the sense of God? Do Do you feel the Holy Spirit in this place? He doesn't ask that either. It's very telling that he doesn't ask these things. Instead, what he asks them, and I might say before we go on, he also doesn't ask them, well, what do you think about that? Do you think that I'm totally missing it? <laughs> or, do you, or do you think I have a point? You know, let's have some give and take here. Let's, let's bat this around you and me like equals. He certainly doesn't do that. When he preaches, he's preaching God's words and God's truth. He, he's not opening in a negotiation. He's not starting a bull session. He's teaching the Word of God. And he doesn't ask them how they feel about it. And he doesn't ask them what they experienced because of it. What does he ask them? Did you comprehend these things? He's asking them, do you get this? Do you understand it? Is this, I'm, I'm getting at the sense of the Greek verb, does this fit together in your mind? Do you see how this fits together? Can you put this together in your mind in a way that you understand it? 
And when Jesus asks that, that's the question of all the questions he could ask. When he asks that, he reveals to us what matters to him and his disciples and what matters to him. The mind. The mind matters. Their understanding. Uh, I just said the, uh, unintentionally the title of a book. A couple of decades ago, a man named John Stott wrote a book called Your Mind Matters, making the point that the Christian mind matters. Well, he, he got that from the Bible, and he could have gotten it from this verse. Because what Jesus is asking them is he's asking about the way they think, about their understanding, about whether they grasp what he's teaching them. And that is something that we've seen in Scripture very often and, and uh, all throughout Scripture. Uh, what does Romans 12.1 say? It says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Yes, yes. But then what does verse 2 say? And do not be configured to this age, but be what? Transformed by the renewal of your what? Mind. Not your feelings, not your emotions, not your senses, but the renewal of your mind, the way you think, the way you see things, what you believe, what you value, how you tell good from bad, uh, true from false, right from wrong. Be renewed by, you're going to be transformed by renewing that. Your transformation comes from the mind, from the renewal of the mind. Renewal, why? Well, because as Romans teaches us, we were dead in trespasses and sins, barring from Ephesians, but Romans teaches that as well. And our minds are hostile to God and could not subject to the law of God. But we're transformed in Christ. We're born again. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our minds, Romans 8 says, in our way of thinking. And so our way of thinking changes. And that's why the life changes. Not simply because we're given a new list of rules and standards to keep up to, but because the way we think and what we think is changed in our conversion. It's as uh, Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all else because from it flow the springs of life. We live the way we do because we think the way we do. Because of what we value and what we conclude and what we judge in our minds. And so Jesus is aiming at their minds. He wants to make sure that they are able to make application of what he's teaching them. That they comprehend it so they can see what it means and, and how it works. Uh, J.C. Ryle and the Bishop of London in the 1800s, he wrote that a sermon without application is like a letter without an address on it. You know, it may be very finely written, it may be a lovely hand, it may have a very ornate signature, may be filled with great things, but if there's no address on the envelope, that's not going anywhere. <laughs> no, it's not going to make any difference to anybody. And so is a sermon without a, a, an application. Jesus did not just te teach to hear himself teach. He did not speak to hear himself speak. So he could pat himself on the back for having said good things. But he wants to know if they, if they comprehended what he taught, because he's teaching to change their minds, to transform their minds, to mold their minds. That's what discipleship is about. Transformation by the renewal of our minds. And so Jesus says, did you comprehend these things?
Now let's look at the disciples' response and see it a little better than I did. By the way, I want to thank you for the opportunity to teach through the Gospel of Matthew so that I can correct all these misapprehensions I had all these decades. Uh, Having to slow down and think it through and dig in more deeply to explain it to you good folks is very good for me. So as I've told Valerie, I just need to be pastor here another 90, 100 years, and maybe I can make it through the whole Bible, and eventually I'll understand the whole thing. But right now, one book at a time, and here we are in Matthew. And the response that I thought was so funny is really not that funny. When they say yes, what they're saying is basically, yeah, they think they get what he's saying. And, and why could they say that? Well, because they had a question and they asked it and he answered it. Do you remember? We just read that. He breaks out in a parable to these people with no explanation. And so later they come up and ask, why are you teaching them in parables? And he explained it to them. Oh, okay. Now they got that. And with other parables, the parable of the uh, wheat and the darnel and the parable of the dragnet, he explained them both to them. So if they had other questions, what could they have done? They could ask. And so he's made them free to do that. And so he's asking them now, you know, basically intrinsic in this question, built into it is if you have any questions, now's a good time to ask. So he asked them and basically they say, yeah, they had asked their questions. They had a basic grasp of what he'd said. Now, think with me, engage in this. What do you think Jesus would have done if they'd said no, I'm not sure we do. What do you think he would have done? Would have gone back to it. He, he might have said, well, which parts? You know, so he can then explain those parts or go back and repeat them. Repetition is very important to teaching. And Jesus repeated himself. So he could have done that. I think if he'd, but, but if he'd said no, they didn't understand. Do you think, what do you think the odds are that he would have said, oh, well, let's move on. No, because there's no point. The point is that they understand. And if they don't, well, it's not like we've got something else to do. This is what this is about. Now, this is going to teach us a lot about what this is about that we're doing right here and that we do every Sunday and on other occasions. But that was a spoiler. So back to what he's saying. Uh, if they'd said no, he would have said, well, then what parts? How can I explain it to you? Now, let me ask you another question. What do you think Jesus, how do you think Jesus would have responded if they'd if he'd said, do you comprehend all these things? Did you comprehend all these things? And their answer was, no, but you know, we're good. It's not all that important to us. We don't really care to comprehend those things. How do you think Jesus would have responded then? Well, I think he would have lit into them. Uh, from other occasions, I think he would have lit into them. He who is free to call them you of little faith and, and be exasperated and show his... his um, being upset with their misunderstandings on other occasions. I, I don't, do, do you think there's any chance if they'd said, oh, it's not that important to us, but no, we don't. But yeah, that's all right. We're good. We, we feel good about ourselves. Let's just move on, do other stuff, do this important work we're doing without understanding why we're doing it. He would not have just let it go. He wouldn't have said, oh, that's fine. That's not the most important thing. No, that was the most important thing. That's why he asked about it. And so if they'd shown indifference towards it, well, reality here now, I'm, I'm, I'm flogging the situation, but in reality, what would they have marked them? What would that have marked them as? If they'd said, we don't really comprehend and we don't care, then what sorts of people would they really have been? Not disciples. <laughs> they would have been, they should have been standing with the people on the shore and not in the boat and not in the room with Jesus. 
So no, he would not have, that would not have been okay with him. That's very important for us to get. I really want you to get that because I'm going to ask the question now and then turn to it. How many churchgoers, if asked that same question about what they're taught, forced to be honest, would have to give that answer? Don't really understand. Don't really care. It's not really what I come for. How many would have to give that answer? Oh, well, let's turn to the next point then, letter B. We saw Jesus probing them. Well, when Jesus probes them, he also probes us, letter B. He probes them, and therefore Jesus also probes us. Therefore us. So Jesus sees us the way he sees them. How did he see them? He saw them as created in the image of God, fallen, corrupted by sin in every part of their being, and in need of redemption, particularly in need of the renewing of their mind of their understanding. They need to comprehend His truth. And so He sees us exactly the same way as people who need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind by comprehending His truth. That's how Jesus sees us. So how Jesus views us the same way He viewed them. And that should have an impact on our aims and our expectations and our priorities. What was Jesus' aim with them and his expectation, his priority? His aim was that they understand. His expectation was that they would learn. And his priority was that they get there. That they attain that comprehension. So how should we see ourselves in the light of how Jesus sees us? That should be our aim too. Amen? As Jesus aims for us to comprehend, so we must aim to comprehend. As Jesus aims for us to be transformed by what we learn, we should aim to be transformed by what we learn. And we should aim to get it. And so that should affect the church we pick to join and align ourselves with. And it should affect what we come to church for, what we come looking for, what we come hoping to accomplish. And every time I hear somebody talk at length and criticize a church service in terms of the way it makes them feel, the atmosphere it sets, the this and the that, that really would be perfectly fitting if it were a nightclub act or if it were a show on Broadway, but we're talking about a church, I see there's somebody who does not get what church is about. Who does not see church the way Jesus sees church. If we saw church the way Jesus sees it, then we would go to church with the intention of comprehending, of learning, of being transformed by the renewal of our mind. And so what kind of church would we look for? A church where the Bible is taught, where it's taught in a living, passionate, believing way with integrity in such a way that we can understand with the goal of making sure that everyone understands. That's what we should look for because that's what Jesus wants for us. And so how would we judge a successful church service versus a failure as a church service? Many Christians who've never looked at a syllable in the Bible about what it teaches about church, could not tell you what the Bible teaches about church, are absolutely certain that if they walk away without a certain feeling, that service has been a failure. But the truth is, it's if we walk away without having been taught the Word of God, that's the failure. If we walk away without having been taught the Word of God so we can comprehend it, that service has been a failure. 
I go back to a service Valerie and I were at decades ago when I, we were between churches and looking for a church to attend. We went to a service. We were in an evening service. A lot of people there. This church, not in Texas, obviously. A lot of people there. Church had buses and everything. And as I was trying to follow what the preacher was saying, Valerie leaned over and whispered to me, look at all the notebooks. And I looked around, uh, people all around us, they were holding notebooks. I noticed that. Okay, that's kind of cool. And then Valerie said, words that pierced my heart as a pastor, they're not writing anything. Because they weren't being taught anything to write. All these people there needing to be fed the word of God, but it wasn't happening. Other things were happening, but that wasn't happening. And that's the one thing that needs to be happening. And so Jesus asked them, did you comprehend all these things? And so he asks us, do you comprehend? Are you aiming at comprehending? Because that's what I want for you. Is that what you are seeking in your life to comprehend all these things? All these things, Jesus says. Not just the easy things, but all the things. So let me ask you, no, I won't make you stand up and and give me your answer one by one. It's a thought, but I won't. But pretend I did. Pretend it was just you and me. And I asked you one-on-one, do you comprehend all these things? What you've heard preached and taught, do you comprehend all these things? Let's keep it really simple. Suppose you were to answer to me, no, I really don't. Then how would I respond? I would say, then what are you going to do about it? Suppose you answered, yes, I comprehend all these things. What might I ask then? What are you doing with it then? What are you doing with all these things that you comprehend? What action are you putting to the truth that you've been taught? Isn't that just what a preacher would ask? Isn't that just in line with what Jesus asks? So more fully, let's look at us. Suppose you've been coming for 10 years Suppose you've been coming for 10 weeks. You've been taught the Word of God during that time. Do you comprehend what you've been taught? Well, if not, then, then why not? Is it because the teaching is unclear and impossible to grasp and I'm inaccessible, I, I won't answer questions or explain things? Or are you using the resources the church has? It's a little church, true, but we've got quite a few resources Let's say you're a, you're a lady and, and you, you don't really understand a lot about the Word or you know that you should grow in it. Well, you know Friday mornings there's a, a really good ladies' Bible study that you could go to in person or you could Zoom if you're not able to make it. I know that many in the church don't take advantage of that. Well, well why not then? Or suppose Fridays you're busy, but Sunday nights you're a lady and, and you're free Sunday nights. Well, there's a, there's a study. There's a really lively, good fellowship I've sat in on uh, Sunday nights, but there's plenty of room and plenty of chairs. It's, it's not being put to all the use that I think it should be put to because these ladies are getting into Romans and practicing it by having fellowship together. This is what a church is supposed to do. Well, there's a good opportunity to do that. Do you use that? Why would you not? Or if you're a man, now we've got men's fellowships twice, uh, twice a month. Uh, yesterday we had a men's fellowship. It was a really good time. We had a really good time of fellowship and digging into the Word together. Uh, are you free? Are you able to do that? Why would you not do that? That's a great opportunity to do that. And we've got many opportunities for kids as well. Uh, but one might think that the kids go to maybe more things than, than the adults do. 
But these are all opportunities for us to grow in our comprehension, to grow in our understanding, and to put it into practice by fellowship. You know, when you ask somebody, talk about somebody who's been in church for some time, and they say, I don't know who that is, well, then that kind of suggests this is someone who's not very active in reaching out in fellowship. It's not that big of a church. It's not the challenge that it would be in other churches, is that fair to say, to actually know everybody in the church? It can be done. If we don't do it, then what does that suggest about our level of involvement? Jesus probes them. And don't you think Jesus would probe us to see, are we growing in the Word and what are we doing with our application of the Word? Well, let's look further. um, Because next thing we see, Roman numeral 2, is that Jesus prods them. P-R-O-D, Jesus prods them. He's probed them. He's been given a positive response. Yes, we comprehend all these things. So now he prods them. And it makes sense they would do this. What, what the preacher's first question would be, okay, do you understand? Yes, okay. Now let's talk about application. What are you going to do? How are you going to put into action these things you've learned now? And Jesus, instead of asking that question, he tells them by means of this eighth parable. This is what, if they understand... As they say, and taking them at their word, then if you understand these things, if you comprehend these things, then here's what follows. Verse 52. And he said to them, on account of this, you see, this is a direct application of their answer. Yes, we do get it. We understand what you're teaching. So he says, on account of this, every scribe discipled in the kingdom of the heavens is like a man who's a housemaster who brings out of his treasure things, new things and old. So first then, let's look at the original context and see how Jesus prods them, letter A, how Jesus prods them. And let's uh, engage in some explanations and applications of these words. Number one, explanations and applications. And in understanding these words, let's go back to the thought of a, of a preacher. As I say, preacher's first question might be, did you understand this? And his second question might be, so what are you going to do about it? And as I say, Jesus, instead of asking them what they're going to do, tells them what they're going to do. If you understand, this is what you need to be doing then. And so let's look at this uh, phrase by phrase, word by word. He says, every scribe discipled in the kingdom. So every scribe, let's just start with those words, every scribe. Now that, that, that is a really interesting word, that he would use that word, that he'd say scribe, that is really interesting. That word is used 22 times in the Gospel of Matthew, and of those 22 times, 20 of them are either neutral or, or I'm sorry, they're either negative or neutral. 16 of them are negative. A scribe is a bad thing, and four of them are just using the word, so not positive, not, not, neg- not negative. Only two verses use it in a positive way. What's one of those verses? Well, this verse. <laughs> Only this one and one other verse, Matthew 23, 34, where he's speaking of the future. He says, I am sending to you prophets and wise men and scribes. These are his scribes. So we need to understand what he means by it. But it's, it's a striking word. It, it is arresting for him to use this word. And it's clear he's not talking about Jewish scribes because those are the ones outside. In Matthew 23, he's going to denounce them again and again. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. So this is not a Jewish scribe. This is a scribe disciple in the kingdom of the 
heavens. So why did he use this word? It's meant to catch our attention and make us think of a person who's a scholar, who's, a, who's if you will, an academic, a top man, somebody who's a scholar in a particular area. In fact, that would not be a bad paraphrase or alternative to this. Every scholar discipled in the kingdom of the heavens is the idea. A, a scribe is a learned person. We, we even have the expression, a man of letters, meaning an educated person that is related to this Greek word. This is a man of letters. This is an educated person. This is a scholar. But what kind of a scholar are we talking about? Every scholar, every scribe, here come the next words, discipled in the kingdom of the heavens. Okay, now that is, that tells it the whole story. If he's dis- discipled in the kingdom of the heavens, was in the, what isn't he? He isn't discipled in the tradition of the elders. We've seen that again and again, right? The rabbis and all the laws they made around the law that ends up burying the law and reducing it to a formula that has nothing to do with knowing God. Well, this is not that kind of a scribe. This is a scribe not discipled in the tradition of the fathers. This is a scribe discipled in what? the kingdom of the heavens. A scribe discipled, made a disciple of, taught like a disciple in the subject, the curriculum of the kingdom of the heavens. And, and what does that discipleship mean? See, it's very different. The, the Jewish scribe was very proud. As one scholar calls them, they were walking footnotes. They could quote the rabbis. They knew all sorts of stuff. They felt pretty right, pretty good, pretty together. But if you're going to be a disciple of the kingdom of the heavens, where does that start? repentance. And what does that look like? It looks like I deny myself and I pick up my cross. It looks like I humble myself. What's the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. So the first step to becoming a disciple in the kingdom of the heavens is to declare bankruptcy and start all over again. So that's why you see this is such a a clever and arresting use of the word scribe. It's like every PhD in the kingdom of the heavens. So to do that, the first thing you have to do is kind of junk everything you thought you knew. You remember we saw Paul does exactly that in Philippians 3, right? Whatsoever things were gained to me, I counted what? Loss for the supremacy of knowing Christ. And I counted them as what? Dung. So that's how he became a scribe of the kingdom of the heaven, trashing what he thought he knew. And so a disciple of the kingdom of the heavens has trashed what he thought he knows and become a scholar of Jesus. He's become a scholar of the cross and one devoted to learning the kingdom of the heavens. And in this special context, the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens, what this phase of God's kingdom program is all about. So every scholar, every person discipled in the kingdom of the heavens, he says, is like a man who is a housemaster. Now, he speaks of housemasters in a number of uh, sayings and parables. The basic idea of a housemaster is that he controls the resources of a household. He may tell the slaves what to do, give them their supplies, uh, make sure that everything is is stocked as it needs to be. That's the housemaster. And so he envisions a housemaster of the kingdom of the heavens. He says, a person, a scribe, discipled in the kingdom of the heavens. In fact, he says, every scribe, described, discipled in the kingdom of the heavens is like a housemaster who does what? Brings out of his treasure. I just want to stop there. 
What is his stock? What's his supply? What's in his larder, his cupboard? Well, it's a treasure. He's going to bring out of his treasure. Now, I, I, I don't want to miss this. Notice it's his treasure, and notice it's his treasure. So in the context here, what would treasure suggest? In the immediate context, it, it suggests the, the uh, two parables about worth, right? The man finding the treasure. He just said that a few verses earlier. The treasure hidden in the field. The merchant finding the pearl beyond price. The treasure's Christ. The, the disciple of the kingdom of the heavens has found the treasure in Jesus Christ. The kingdom and everything about it centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's his treasure. And that's what he's going to bring out of. What he's going to bring out of is not academics, it's not traditions, it's not human philosophy, it's not prejudices and biases, it's not cultural uh, myths and legends, it's the treasure of Jesus Christ. That's what he brings out of. But I also want you to notice, and don't miss, it's his treasure. He's made that his own. It's not just academic. It's not his parents' treasure. It's not his children's treasure. It's not his wife's treasure. It's not his husband's treasure. It's not his pastor's treasure. He's found it. He's made it his own. How do you do that? Repentant faith. And the treasure is yours. Whose treasure is Jesus Christ in this room? Every man, woman, and child who's believed in Jesus Christ. If you've repented and believed in Jesus Christ, if you're born again, Christ is your treasure. Amen? He's our treasure, and He's each of our treasure. And so this person, he brings out of his treasure. He, he can't do it by quoting books and theologies. He can't do it by quoting confessions. can't even do it simply by quoting Scripture verses. It's verses he believes, and he's taken in from a Savior he loves and he worships. Brings out of his treasure. That's his stock. That's his supply. And he brings out. Now, you have a footnote that says that's usually translated, he casts out. See, I really want you to get this. This person has a treasure, right? What does he do with the treasure? Well, he might just admire it. He might just feel good about having it. He might tell people about what he has. He might keep what he has from people. He might just go and visit it every so often and revel in it himself, right? He can do all those things, but not this man. That's not what a scribe disciple in the kingdom of the heaven does. He's not contented just to have it, just to know it's there, just to, in theory, have it, have it in his treasure house. What does he do? Brings out. Present tense, keeps bringing out. And it's the word that is usually ca uh, translated, he casts out. So that translation wouldn't really work, but I want you to get that the idea is not just that he sets out out of reach, but he wants to distribute it like a seed, like you cast out seed. He casts out of his treasure. He brings it out to distribute to all who he can distribute it to. Doesn't hoard it up. He gives it out with vigor and, and, and with energy, and he does it constantly. Keeps bringing out of his treasure. What? Things old and new, or lit, more literally, he says, new things and old. So he's neither a radical nor a conservative per se. What does that mean? Well, a radical is a person who just in principle says, everything's got to go. Everything old is bad. 
New things have to take the place of everything. That's a radical. What's a conservative in principle? A conservative in principle, well, William F. Buckley had a humorous way of saying that a conservative was somebody who stands in front of the wheel of progress and says, stop. (laughs) But that's, that's not exactly right. But a conservative is somebody at his worst who says, no, no, everything's fine. Nothing changes. Things must remain just as they are. Well, this person is neither a radical nor a conservative. He doesn't say new for the sake of new, forget the old, or old for the sake of old, forget the new. He brings out things new and old. You say, well, that's perfectly clear to me now. Now, let me make it perfectly clear to you, because my aim is that you comprehend. So let's look together at Hebrews chapter 1 and see exactly what we're talking about. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Hebrews chapter 1. Sets it just perfectly, and then we'll look at some more. One of the most masterful beginnings of any book anywhere that I know of. Hebrews 1.1, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, who having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now this, this just brings out perfectly what Jesus is talking about. This first verse speaks about the Old Testament, doesn't it? Does it put down the Old Testament? Absolutely not. It's God speaking. That's what God said. What we have in our Old Testament is the speaking of God. Many portions, many manners to the fathers by the prophets. But it all leads up to this, verse 2, in his last days spoke to us in his Son. So do we throw out the Old Testament? Well, we'd have to throw out the letter to the Hebrews because he spends the rest of the letter using the Old Testament to point to Christ. He brings out exactly like Jesus says. He's the perfect example of a scribe, if you will, discipled in the kingdom of the heavens because he was a very academic man, the man who wrote this. And yet he constantly brings out things new and old. The fulfillment of this in Jesus Christ, but as well the meaning of the Old Testament. So things new and old. Jesus spoke of the same thing in Matthew 5. Turn to Matthew 5. And we spent a a bit of time on this when we were there in the Sermon on the Mount. uh, Verses on which hundreds of thousands of words have been written. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Jesus says in so many words, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. He came not to teach the fulfillment, but personally to fulfill the Old Testament. So is it without value? In no way. And it's permanent, but it is fulfilled in him. And so he goes on to say in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, I'm sorry, verse 19, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be the great in the kingdom of heaven. What are these commandments? It's his teaching. He comes and fulfills the law and the prophets, and he teaches, and his teaching is permanent. And that's why the very last words of this gospel are teaching them to observe all that I command you. So, there, right there, we have things new and old. 
Uh, And we have it in chapter 13 as well, where he speaks of the mysteries of the kingdom, and he quotes from the Old Testament to explain it. Things new and things old. So the scribe of the kingdom of God will teach from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. He'll bring out the eternal, timeless truths, still relative, still relevant, still applicable, still true from the Old Testament. But he will also teach the fulfillment and the fullness of revelation in the new. Things new and things old. That's what the scribe, disciple in the kingdom of God does. So let's reflect a little bit. Jesus says, who does this? How many scribes discipled in the kingdom of heaven? I'll wait. Every. Every scribe discipled in the kingdom of the heavens, Jesus says. So it's broader than just the twelve. He's not just talking about the twelve. He's talking about others beyond them. And I'm going to get into that in just a moment, but I want to just start you thinking that way and then ask you this question before we move on. Suppose Jesus had said this and told them this, and they said, wait a minute, I have no intention of doing that. Would that have been okay with Jesus? I dare say no, because he just said every scribe disciple in the kingdom of the heaven does this. So if somebody's not willing to do this, then what isn't he? He's not a scribe disciple in the kingdom of the heavens. He hasn't learned or taken to heart. In fact, let's just, before we move on, let's, let's, let's just nail this down. Suppose someone had said, if that's the case, then I don't really want to know these things because I don't want to give these things away. I, don't, I, I have a comfortable groove I want to stay in. I do not want to get out of that groove. Other people's stuff is their stuff. I don't want the hassle. I don't want the threat. I don't want to be bothered. Suppose they'd said that. So let's take it piece by piece. They say, I don't even want to know them. Well, then what's the problem with a person like that? Is there any chance Jesus would say, well, that's okay? No, there's no chance he would say that. But what would he go to as being at the heart of that? Well, then if that's your attitude, you don't love God and you don't love. Tell me, what are the two great commandments? You don't love God and you don't love your neighbor. Why? Well, if you don't want to know these things, then you don't want to know God. Simple as that. It's not that important to you that you see who God is and know him. And if you don't want to give them to anyone else, well, then obviously you don't love your neighbor because you're willing to see them, well, go to hell and walk in ignorance and blindness and lostness and misery. And that's okay with you because you don't want to be bothered And there's no love for God there, and there's no love for man there. No, that's not okay. So let's look then, letter B, how Jesus prods us, finally. So, And let's ask specifically, who then does Jesus mean when he speaks of every scribe disciple in the kingdom of the heavens? Well, there is certainly a direct application to the apostles and to pastor-teachers. Why, why, how could I say that? Because that's in their job description. That's what they do. <laughs> Apostles are the mouthpiece of Christ. They speak the words of Christ. That's, that's what they're for. And that's why there are no apostles today, because they have spoken everything Jesus wanted to say for this age. And what's the job of a pastor? Simply to teach those words. That's, that's his job. 
Take that away and he's got no job. That's the job. That's the center in the heart of the job of being a pastor. So yeah, does this apply to the apostles? Yes. Will it apply to pastors? Absolutely. Does it apply to anyone else? Well, yeah, it does. For one thing, this has been the attitude of all God's people always. Oh, how can I say that? I told the men yesterday that some of the things Chad was bringing out, they'd, they'd hear again this morning, and here we go. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and following. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Okay, check. What's the next? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Check. What's next? And these words which I am speaking will be on your heart, and you will speak of them. Remember that? There it is. There's one God. If we love him, then we will fill our hearts with his word, and we will leak that out and spread that out and bring out of our treasury. In that case, the, the things new were the book of Deuteronomy. But it's the same spirit. You see it in Ezra, who is actual scribe, a literal scribe. Ezra 7.10. Ezra 7.10 says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to do it and to teach in Israel's statute and judgment. Now he was a priest, and it was his heart to learn God's word, do God's word, and distribute it, teach it, give it out. That's the same spirit Jesus is talking about. We see it in Psalm 34.11 also. Psalm 34.11, Come, children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. You see that all over the Old Testament, the need to teach and to pass on and to spread, to distribute the Word of God. But it's also very much in the New Testament as well. Turn to Colossians 3.16 with me. I trust I don't need to establish the case that pastors should teach. I'm going beyond that, though. The only teaching that goes on in a church must not be what comes from the pulpit alone. In fact, I would say, if it's only coming from the pulpit, then, the people on the other, then either the teaching is bad, or the people on the other side of the pulpit aren't learning. Because this is what's supposed to happen when Christ's Word is central. Look at Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, this is a word to a church, not just an individual to have devotions. A church should let the word of Christ dwell in it richly. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Go back. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Not just addressed to pastors, not just addressed to Sunday school teachers, but addressed to the entire congregation, that when the word of Christ dwells richly, we should all be sharing with one another, bringing out of our treasuries, if you will, things new and old, and giving them to each other and encouraging each other. This is something that has an impact on everybody, every scribe, discipled in the kingdom of the heavens. One more, Hebrews chapter 5. He's writing to a group of Jews who profess faith in Christ, and now we're showing signs of turning back. It was some time ago they'd become believers. And he just mentions Melchizedek from Genesis 14. And he says, I'd like to talk more about Melchizedek, but I know your eyes would all just glaze over. You'd have no idea what I was saying. You wouldn't be able to follow me at all. Why? Well, because he says in verse 12, 
no, he said, let's go back to 11. The reason why is you've become dull of hearing. More literally, you've become lazy listeners. You watch, you listen, and you don't do anything with what you hear, he says to them. And so verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers. I'm just going to stop there. There's an expectation that they would be what? Well, you know, to turn a phrase, they'd be like house owners who bring out of their treasure things new and old and give them away. Right? You ought to be teachers, he says. Does that mean they all should be teaching Sunday school? No. They should all be pastors? No. But there's, te- there's, a, there's official church-recognized office of teacher, and then there's just the teaching of normal conversation and fellowship. But of course, for that to happen, you've got to be in fellowship, and you've got to have conversations. More on that in just a second. But the, the expectation then is that all of them would be able to teach by now. So who does Jesus mean? It's an application for all disciples. Secondly, what does he mean? Well, first of all, we've got to create that treasure. We've got to have something to give away. And then we've got to distribute that treasure and give it away. When I was a, just a very young man, and I, had a, a, I was aiming at being a pastor, and I was 18, 19 years old, and my mother saw I was building a library, and she said, why are you getting all these books? You already know what you believe. And I said, well, but one day I'm going, to, I'm going to be giving to other people, and I want to make sure when that happens, I've got something to give them. Well, really, that's an attitude we all should have. We all should have that treasury that is our treasure from which we can give to others because we love God and because we love other people. And those are motivating, life-altering loves. So... Who he means is disciples. What he means is create a treasure and be eager to bring things out of it and give them away and distribute them. And finally, the most personal question, what am I doing about it? And this is the question I want all of us to ask ourselves very probingly as Jesus asks them probingly, what am I doing about it? Am I seeking the opportunities, all that there are to grow in my comprehension so that I might build a treasure from which I can give away. Am I, uh, you, you, I've mentioned some meetings. You know we've also got all of our sermons and most of our lessons online. We've got 10 years of sermons on various topics, teaching what the Bible teaches online, just uh, accessible in sermon audio. Uh, besides the books, besides the meetings, there's all sorts of different resources, though we're a little church. Am I seeking opportunities not just to grow in comprehension, though, but am I seeking opportunities to give away? Obviously, if I'm the sort of person who leaves church the second the service is over, well, then no. If I don't know anybody else in the church, well, then probably I'm not. If I don't ever talk to people who are not within 10 years of my age, probably not. You know, we've talked about the fact that if a young person came to this church and saw, well, there's a lot of people of older age, what they ought to think is they ought to think, great, that's a resource for me. But it's only a resource if those on the older age look for opportunities to give and not just talk to each other about things we already agree on, but look for opportunities to get to know and be a use and a servant to other people and give them of the treasure we have uh, through all whatever strata we are, wherever we find ourselves. Uh, We need to invest ourselves and take time 
Look for opportunities just like this house owner looks for ways to bring out of his treasure and give them away. That's the spirit Jesus wants us to have. Transformed in our comprehension and liberally giving away at every opportunity from the treasure that we've built. So, Jesus' searching question, do you comprehend all these things? That question probed us. But what are we going to do about it? Remember the words of James 1. You make sure James says that you are a doer of the word and not just a hearer, like somebody who looks at a mirror and then walks away and forgets what you saw. Be a doer of the word, James says. And secondly, Jesus' parable has prodded all of us, I dare say. And again, the question is, so what are we going to do about it? From James 1, we go to James 2, and James 2 says, faith without works is dead like a body without a spirit. We need to know, we need to remember, we need to put it into practice. God help us to do so. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this penetrating word preached by your Son. Thank you for all the truth with which it bursts. We pray that the Spirit of God will apply it powerfully to each of our hearts, to our growth, to our blessing, to your glory, to the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen.